So good evening, everyone. I hope that you had a nourishing meal and some time to rest and continue in your own way. And this evening, we'll be sharing some thoughts and reflections on wise attitude, which we've begun already with the sheet from Sayadaw and some of these reminders. But I want to begin with a summary of the practice. That this method, this lineage, in its brilliancy is so practical. You know, there's much less, in my familiarity with Sayadaw's teachings, there's much less long explanation on what Nibbana is or what enlightenment feels like or some of the more philosophical, esoteric sides of this practice because he's so interested in how to practice. And that's his genius, I think, is really just the on-the-ground, moment-by-moment, what are we doing? What are we doing here? And the, I find it's an interesting, the contrast of his instructions that they're so simple and yet so many layers can unfold as we're simply observing experience as it is. Sometimes that's it. That's the whole instruction. Don't try to make anything happen. Don't try to prevent anything from happening. But don't forget to know what is happening. So we're observing like wild animals in their natural state. We're observing the machinations of the heart and the mind and the body as it's changing moment by moment and holding this very relaxed, receptive, confident kind of steadiness with this knowing mind. And so Alexis has been pointing all through today at this wise effort this right effort that's like this tap of a swing. You know, and I think some of us do, in, in practice, we tend to run back and forth with the swing because we don't necessarily trust that awareness is happening and we think we have to try harder than we really do. I mean, this is trained in everyday life in our culture. Aren't we trained to really push? We try so hard. And so this is very countercultural. this sense of all you have to do very light touch. Trust that that swing is going already. We do have to remember again and again to come back, but that's it. That's the entirety of the effort. And so it can often feel too easy. And we, we swing back and forth. That's why wise effort is part of the Noble Eightfold Path and an ongoing lifetime of understanding because we swing, we try really hard, we push ourselves, we get tired. You know, my auntie, I love to run, and I was training for marathons during a period of my life, and my auntie said, you know, it's not like this marathon. Life is the marathon. Right? What's that kind of effort? That it's not like this day of mindfulness. But can we put in the kind of effort that's sustainable? A life of awareness. We have to actually do much less for that to be possible. 
So then we might swing back in the other way and do a lot less. We get lazy. I've, I've had this whole period practicing this method. I got very lazy. Well, why do I even have to practice? Because I'm already aware. It's all just happening. I don't need to say it. It's a couple of years, actually. <laughs> and then I looked at my mind, really, and I saw how complacent it had become. There was a lot of following greed and following aversion. And then kind of, Joseph calls it a kind of casual mindfulness. So when I talked to Alexis about this, we were walking on the beach in Portland, and I told him, you know, I'm so lazy now in my practice. And he said, well, Sayadaw and his teachings on wise effort doesn't necessarily talk about trying hard, but he talks about wholeheartedness. Right? How is that to, to trust your mind, trust awareness, but also practice with your whole heart? Like, I care about this. We care. So that's that balance of wise effort. And knowing we're going to pendulate back and forth between too much and too little, that there is a kind of sense we get when we're balanced and things feel like they're going on their own, there's momentum, it can, there can really feel like this wholehearted kind of effort. I really care about this, and there's a lot of releasing. Receiving the moment and releasing it. Receiving the moment and releasing it. So observe the moment as it is, with wise effort, when we get too stimulated, when there's a lot coming in, the sense doors, or we get caught up in thoughts, the body is a helpful anchor. Body's a good anchor. And really what we're doing here, moment by moment, is simply gathering data. We're learning. We're learning the nature of this body and this mind so that we allow the space for this natural wisdom to grow that knows what to do. So practical. Maybe there's more wisdom about reality and the nature of things. But really what we want is just what, what do we do? We're in this pretty complicated human experience. Often there's a lot of confusion and overwhelm. How do I act? What do I say? These situations are complex. And this kind of wisdom that's observed many moments, you know, one right after the other, knows our habits. It, it grows this very intuitive kind of knowing that's unexpected often, surprising, and body kind of wisdom that can respond with skill and care. So that's the summary, basically, practice instructions, what we're doing. So as we, as we keep knowing each experience as it is, each moment, we notice that there's often several things happening. There is object, right? There's the body, there is a thought, there's a sound, there's a kind of wholesome knowing of the situation in the moment. And then lead over that, there's the interpretation. A little bit like Alexis was saying with the vibrating, we have the sound, but then we have a whole story of what it is, and it shouldn't be happening, and why. So this secondary overlay of experience is, can be a push-pull. I like this, I don't like it. It should be happening, it shouldn't be happening. And that overlay is often what we 
talk about when we talk about attitude. So we're observing, and then there's an attitude in the mind that really thinks it's great or really thinks it's not. So wise attitude, right? Attitude is this whole, it's like a, another layer of seeing how the mind is holding ourselves, our experience, others. Very liberating when we start to see, oh, I have a choice about my attitude here. So I think Alexis mentioned yesterday, I've done a lot of retreats alone in the woods. And my dear friend, uh, just outside of my hometown, I was born in Southern Oregon in Ashland, and a dear friend has a couple of retreat cabins up in the mountains in Oregon. And so maybe a decade, about a decade ago, I did my first really long solo retreat up there in this cabin. And I had been wanting to do a long retreat like this for many years. Since I was in college, I had been aspiring to do this kind of solo retreat. But it takes a lot of, took, so, took a lot of saving and a lot of conditions to come together. I had, had a lot of support. I had people who were shopping for groceries for me. And I had a caretaker who was bringing me water and wood. It's only wood fire. And so I did about a lot of years of making aspirations and saving money and talking to friends and telling my family I was going to do this. And finally it all came together where I had six months. And I had, luckily I sort of carved out this long period of time. So I had done some long retreat at IMS first. Kind of got all the instructions. I think that was the retreat actually where I met Alexis and Susa. I was sitting the three month. And so really did a lot just got introduced to this style of practice and then entered this period of six months when I was sitting alone. And I had raised money and I had all this viria, I had all this energy. I had written out a very intensive schedule for myself. 3.30 wake up, four o'clock sitting, six o'clock breakfast. <laughs> just very military. I was gonna do the enlightenment thing. Very simple food, you know, no contact. There was no reception, no contact. Even the caretaker, I was only going to be writing notes to him. So he would drop off my food at the bottom of the trail, and I would bring it up, drop off the water, I would bring it up. So very solitary. And I got in. My parents drove me up, unloaded, this tiny little one-room cabin. I unpacked all my things. I had my teddy bear. I had like all my things. <laughs> and I remember just watching, standing on my deck and watching the truck drive down the road. And really almost having a panic attack. Like six months. What is going to happen? And this very, is such a strong super ego around like, I'm going to do this really well. I've been wanting to do it so long and so many people gave me money to do this and all these people are counting on me. Like very intense. Really a lot of effort. So you can guess how long that lasted. <laughs> For about two weeks I really followed my schedule so well. But so much suffering in the mind. All of this loneliness. Like very intense loneliness. Because it wasn't just that I was alone moment by moment every day. I knew that I was like, okay, I'm here, it's January. I'm going to be here until June. <laughs> like, just the sheer weight of time 
So that would make the loneliness worse. Then I had so much shame about how much suffering I was having. Like, wait, a decade of practice, and here I am just struggling and collapsing and crying. Like, so much dukkha, so much judgment of what was coming up. I didn't have a lot of teacher support. My teachers, they had a different tradition. They're getting instruct me every, every six weeks. I would have a visit from my teacher. That was it. We planned it all out, six weeks. So week two, I was like, I think I need a little more help. And so it wasn't really a, a moment of compassion. I reached out to a longtime Vipassana teacher, a friend of mine, and I said to him, you know, I'm struggling. I'm in here forever. Can I talk to you like once a month maybe? And he was so kind. He said, you know what? Let's talk once a week. You can call me on Wednesdays. So it was horrible reception. It didn't really make much sense. I don't think he understood anything of what I was saying in these phone conversations. But there was something about just having that touchstone. And, the, and someone who knew that I needed that. I needed that support. And so sometime during that first month, I was talking to Eugene, my teacher, and he went to a retreat with Saigon Utejaniya. And he came back, and he started telling me about it. And I knew. I had met Alexis. I knew that practice. And so here I broke another rule. I went up. I got on my phone, and I downloaded all of the talks on Dharma Seed from Sayadaw Utejaniya. It's like hundreds of them. And so it changed my whole schedule. You know, I had this moment sitting, suffering. I had this sense of, like, if I'm going to stay for six months, I need to just completely rework the whole thing. The only thing that's going to keep me staying here is if I need, I just need to revamp the schedule, I need to sleep, I need to eat, and I need my hammock. And so I pulled out my purple hammock, and I had a sleeping bag and warm things, even in the winter, it's pretty warm winter. So every afternoon, I would go out, I would lie in my hammock for hours, and listen to Sayadaw. And this long, you know, if you've listened on Dharma Seed, there's interviews that go on for a couple hours. And just that message, hearing again and again, it's not about the experience that you're having, if it's good or it's bad, or how you're doing. It's just what is happening. It's knowing what is happening in the moment. And it was like medicine for me. Like, I don't have to be any particular way. I don't have to do this perfect yogi posture. I still had to deal with a lot of guilt about lying in my hammock for all afternoon. But there was something deeper in me that knew this is what I needed to remedy so many years of pushing so hard and trying to get something for practice. Because Sayana was always saying, it's not about having a particular experience or being a special person. Just simple, be yourself and just notice. So that was my, I've never met Sayada in person, but there was such a, a sense of devotion to his teachings after those six months. And the other beautiful thing about listening was that he teaches in group meetings, like a lot of practice meetings are recorded, so I could hear other yogis reporting their experience. And that kind of companionship just, we're going to start doing that tomorrow. We get to hear what's happening for each other. There was a kind of solidarity that I felt. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't feel so alone 
in my cabin when I was hearing all of these other people practicing and encountering their wisdoms and their difficulties. All of that was just so, so helpful for me. So observing with right attitude, right? It's just what's happening right now in the moment. Any posture, accepting, observing, and learning from your experience just as it is. a lot of pieces here stuff, but I think what I want to do is turn to to you and see if you have anything to add. We had talked about kind of making this a joint reflection period. Mm. Sharing thoughts. Do you want this mic? I was enjoying this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Listening. We also talked about having just a a ten minute talk and (laughs) keeping it very quiet and simple tonight. But we were joking. Is that for you or is that for us? (laughs) I'm just curious how you doing. Anyone feeling super tired? during the day today, or feeling some tiredness, waking up a little bit, some kind of centering and grounding, slowly happening, maybe. Yeah, so the rhythms of the first day or two kind of go through a lot of stuff. Um, There's one little, uh, as Devin was sharing about Saito or Tishinia, Kind of reflects his his naturalness, and really for me it was such an important message because sort of as Devin was describing, and maybe for some of you, so many ways in which um, the conditioning in our culture and society is 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 never enough. You got to do more, be better, um, and so it was such a gift to be with someone that uh, maybe he went to the other extreme. Don't know if that's possible. Like so natural, so kind of at ease in being himself. And uh, at that retreat, I think that Eugene was at um, it was at Spirit Rock his first time. So Spirit Rock is the retreat center out in Marin County, so just north of San Francisco. Uh, has anyone been to that retreat center? A couple of you. Yeah. So it's one that Jack Cornfield and. Sylvia Bornstein, do they found that? Yeah. Um, it's his first visit to the retreat center, and so the big retreat center is up the hill a little bit, these beautiful rolling hills at Marin. 
and he gives the morning instruction, uh, kind of his first time in the hall, and then wanders down to where the kind of dining area is and some of the um, the benches that people sit on uh, you know, to have their meals. And as coming down, strolling afterwards, and I so coming down the hill, I see that he's laying on top of the park of a bench, you know, the table itself. <laughs> so it's a, to see a monk laying on the table, which I'm sure no one at that retreat center has ever laid just there in total visibility on the table. And I came down, it's like, sign on. Are you sure you should be lying on this table? <laughs> yes, it is. It seems comfortable. It's a good place to rest. So yeah, but you're a monk. And, don't know if the optics of that <laughs> carry it over so well. Um, and it's just so handy to be just like, yeah, but I want people to feel at home, you know. And, and here he was, this is not his home. He was at the retreat center. So, yeah, just the invitation of, of kind of coming into our own, um, you know, our own nature and giving ourselves permission to be as we are. I know when I came into the practice, there was similar with Devin, this kind of intensity of going to get it right. And, you know, trying to sit, my posture, um, God, it sits so upright. And it's lovely when the energy is there, but oftentimes the energy doesn't want to sit up. And then at some point in the sitting, sometimes the energy naturally comes in the posture. I think I'm, it's like, if you're maybe do a speed, like we call it like a, time, you know, compress the whole sitting. It might look like an inchworm or something, kind of inching my way <laughs> into uh, practice. So I just felt listening of the body. You know? But there was so much struggle in the beginning. So this whole orientation around attitude, it's a little bit more subtle to kind of sense um, like what is the attitude and you share this that oftentimes I know Tejaniya would come into the hall and he would say, you know, check your attitude. And then, you know, because attitude can feel a little like, what's your attitude? And inwardly, I, was, I would always feel like, I don't have an attitude. <laughs> what's he talking about, attitude? No attitude here. <laughs> so this, this attitude really is how we're relating right, to experience. And it takes some time to sense it, because whatever it is that we're knowing, so I'm holding up this little uh, bell striker, this experience that we're talking about is really whatever part of our life in the present moment that we're knowing, right? It's, again, it could be a sound, experience of the body, um, emotions, thoughts, moods, the mind is becoming more stable, or the mind that's distracted, so whatever it is that's happening in the present moment, we say is our experience. And we often call experience the object, meaning it's something that's knowable. So every aspect of our experience, our whole life has been knowable, but usually we're so identified with it that it's hard to be aware of it. So when we're in the river, it's said, right? If you're in the river, it's hard to see it. When you're on the side, observing, it's the nature of, of seeing. So the experience then, whatever we're experiencing, 
how we're relating to it, we say that is our attitude. And typically, the Buddha said, the nature of conditioning is that when it's an unpleasant experience, the mind's habit, the mind's tendency is to resist, to, to want to get rid of it, just out of conditioning. And in a way that shows the universal aspect of all of our hearts and minds want to feel at ease. Across the whole like, animal kingdom, there's a desire to be out of suffering. And you, any animal, basically, if you give some stimulus that's suffering, they'll recoil and pull back. Right? So we're the same way. The conditioning is to not want to have the unpleasant, so we push. And when it's pleasant, we want it to last. We attach and we hold on. And this is just the habit of the mind, so pleasant and unpleasant. And then when it's more neutral, either experiences, other people that we don't have a lot of feelings about, when we're neutral, we just don't see it. Right? We don't experience so much of our life because it's in the terrain of more neutral. And oftentimes, the reason why we come on retreat, and there's a way in which it takes some time to adjust to this level of experience is because so often we are really over-stimulated, almost addicted to intensity. And unless it's intense, we're not noticing it. Right? And here we have a chance to begin to notice an incredible range of experiences. And it becomes hard to then say, eventually it's hard to say that nothing's happening. You can be sitting in a very simple, dull room. And there was one moment that was so powerful for me. I was sitting in the monastery with Sayadaw and Tejaniyan. Just before lunch, and I was sitting there looking at the most ordinary door on the most ordinary floors. Like, it was not a pleasant. There was definitely no feng shui in the way these rooms were designed. It was just miserable. Um, I was sitting there in tears, just streaming down my eyes because of the beauty of the present moment. And I had never experienced something like that. It was so powerful to simply be in the present moment. And it wasn't about the outside. So the, the worldly conditions, right? the world is the way it is, and sometimes it's really beautiful. But what we describe as Sometimes the Buddha would use this term, unworldly. The unworldly joys isn't the joy that's dependent on right, something that's being experienced. This is something that is generated, the beauty of the heart and mind. And we feel that when the mind becomes very stable, awake, clear. It's independent, right? This is that term, so abiding independent of conditions of the world. That doesn't mean we don't care, doesn't mean we don't love and see the beauty and relate and have intimacy. But this is where it shows that actually our freedom is possible. Because if our joy was totally dependent on what we see and what we hear and what we experience, there would be no freedom possible. Or our freedom would be absolutely tethered to the world going the right way. And given the way the world is going, <laughs> freedom would literally be impossible in this particular time, in this realm, because it's just not going perfectly. 
And yet, how do we be with this world, right, the way it is? How do we be with it? And that's part of what we're exploring. So the attitude, um, the attitude that we start to discover is this energy of pushing and pulling. And a lot of our practice is going to be exploring the wanting, wanting to go do something, wanting to get something, wanting to stop experiencing something, so greed and aversion. And as Deb was saying, it's a little bit easy to judge those terms, greed and aversion, like we shouldn't have them. So really seeing these as, as energies that really run the show in everyone's hearts and minds to some degree. Sometimes they're very extreme, and we see the result of those. But oftentimes they're very subtle movements, and the reason why often we're, we're, we're just talking about this, how exhausted we can be, even when not doing very much, is that it's rare to live really in the middle way. The middle way of neither grasping after and indulging in experiences nor trying to get rid of them, but living right in a place of equanimity. But most of the time, most of the time what we're going to be observing is the wanting and the not wanting. So get used to it. <laughs> and enjoy it. Because as soon as you start to get fascinated and interested in this energies, rather than judging them, practice becomes really interesting. If we judge ourselves every time we see some wanting and aversion as if it's going wrong, then practice feels difficult. So when there's interest, you can say we're already, in a way, inclining the mind towards wise attitude. If you're curious, it's difficult to be aversive. You're just kind of starting to bring that kind of quality of the mind forward. Dhamma Vichaya, that's called the, the interesting, interested mind. Dhamma Vichaya, it's like the wisdom investigative mind. But it's not trying to figure something out, it's just there, interested, curious. Because it's a lot like here, there's no electricity. 
And so there's not even lights from a generator in these cabins. So there's a lot of dark, and in the winter times, very long, dark evenings and long, dark mornings. And so I was sleeping a lot, and it was great. And one dark, stormy evening, I was going to bed very early, but I was I was woken by this kind of this kind of sound. I know in the cabin, and I knew this. This cabin has a history of mice, but the caretaker, who's wonderful, had done a lot of work to try to plug up all the mouse holes. So I tried to just ignore and go back to sleep. And then this went on for some days. You know, right around evening time, it was getting dark. I hear them start. I could hear them kind of getting into my food. And my first response was to just ignore. It's not happening. I don't really want to know what's going on over there. Just going to keep doing my practice. Eventually, I had to go really look. Okay, the mice had gotten into some of the bulk goods that I had. I could see their poops around, and so told the caretaker. And we embarked on this huge research project. Right, where are these mice coming from? Because he'd done years of plugging up mouse holes, and he had the steel wool he'd shove into all the cracks in the log cabin. And so both of us together were doing this, and it was really. Interesting. There was a lot of dhamma Like, okay, we're gonna figure this mystery out because this cabin is like mouse-proof. It should be. So, looking all around inside, all around outside. In my practice, I would watch my mind kind of like memorize all of the wood and the cracks. Like, oh wait, wait I haven't looked there yet. <laughs> Planning my research, and really, we couldn't figure it out. I put all of my food away in a really like solid cabinet. But somehow it seemed like they were getting into that cabinet. They were coming from there, but it didn't like didn't make sense how. So a lot of just like data gathering. Okay, it's not here, it's not there. We plugged up all the extra holes. Finally, after all this investigation, we discovered these were like super mice. They were coming up through there's this pipe that was like buried, and then it was the pipe from the sink that would, you know, output the water just down the hill some feet. So these mice were coming in through that pipe. I mean, it was all slippery and, you know, bucky in there. Crawling through that pipe. And then it was vertical for maybe six feet. And these mice were able to crawl vertically up this plastic pipe. And there was a hole at the top of it. One came out the sink. The other one went into my really foolproof cabinet with all the food. So amazing, they were getting in that way. And once we figured that out, we were able to just plug that hole, no more mice. So I think that's a really perfect story about how Dhamma Vichaya, if we investigate, we get interested in the problem, whatever it is, it's if it's aversion, if it's jealousy, if it's loneliness, if it's grief, instead of, first, usually we tend to ignore, right? I don't really want to feel this, we get distracted. If we can turn towards it, get very interested, eventually wisdom will grow. We start to see, oh, it's that moment when the mind and the heart or the body feels a particular way and inclines that way. Those are the causes and the conditions that then lead to this waterfall cascade of further events. So that's how this mindfulness and wisdom can grow together. Like Tarian was asking this morning, when we get very curious about a particular situation, wisdom grows every time. 
And then that equanimity is so beautiful. The Buddha pointed to this again and again in the Satipatthana Sutta, this foundational sutta on mindfulness. He said, a yogi dwells independent, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. Again and again he says that. And sometimes that phrase has felt a little mysterious to me, like, I don't know if I even want to be independent. I like participating in things, and I like belonging to each other, and aren't we all doing this together? Yes, but I think, and we've just been talking about this this week, that phrase really mostly is pointing to right attitude. That is more a kind of self-confidence or a kind of dignity or steadiness independent. I would rather say like dignified or content or in our natural belonging when we're free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. And then, of course, we're not, right? we got to get used to it, wanting and not wanting. But it really does work over time. There's more and more glimpses of what that might feel like. So Jane Goodall, she's 88 now. She's a wonderful anthropologist, primatologist. She spent 60 years studying chimpanzees in their natural environment. She says this, she says, only if we understand can we care. Only if we care, we will help. Only if we help, we shall be saved. So I think this is why it's so important what we're doing here. Sometimes it can feel maybe frivolous to go away from the world and give ourselves some days of quiet. But what we're doing is cultivating this understanding that then leads to a much deeper kind of connection and care, and then leads to this skillful action. It knows what to do from a heart of compassion, not a heart of reacting, push-pull, a much more engaged kind of healthy reaction, response to a world that we love, even in all its complexities, its sorrows, its joys. Oh, the time went really fast. Do you, what do you think? Do you want to do a little bit of questions? Yeah. Okay. So if you don't have any questions, that's really fine. But we wanted to offer just the opportunity to hear what's up for you, questions arising, arguments, uh, really anything that might feel helpful. Yeah, great. And we do have a mic, um, if you do, if you want to use that mic. It has a wire in the back speaker, so you're welcome to go back there and, and ask your question. Or you can just speak very loudly. Yeah. Um, in the sheet that you handed out, the, the tips about what is meditating and everything, there's this word that I don't really understand what it means, defilement. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't yeah, know that I really understand what a defilement is. 
So that's where sometimes we like to use the Pali. Uh, the, the Pali word is kalesa, kalesa, and it basically means the qualities that, if we were to work backwards, let's start with suffering, and we were to look for a cause, you would always find a kalesa. You would always find some suffering, some quality that might describe it as an afflictive state. In this sort of understanding of these these energies. So by their nature, kalesas are energies when they are like they're doing the living, let's say, they'll lead to some kind of contraction, some sort of binding, some some clinging, some kind of resistance, pulling, tugging in the heart, or confusion, so moha, which means delusion, misunderstanding the way things are when we take things to be more permanent than they truly are. That's, that's a confusion. So when everything truly is, as we know just from theory, like everything is truly blinking in and out of existence all the time. And yet we have this illusion of permanence. Or as we understand causes and conditions more and more thoroughly, right? it's harder to... Or as we, as we have that understanding, when we look into our own experience, what we see is the nature of cause and effect. And yet, almost everything that we see and hear and feel, we associate as me, right? as I. And this is where we drop in sort of these words of like its nature, cause and effect, causes and conditions. What we're trying to do a little bit is to just see the wisdom of our own mind and in your minds of seeing experience not through the self lens all the time, which is the way we experience everything. But what does it look like when we actually relate to an experience as a condition, something that's arising? And, and eventually we start to see even that the nature of the mind and heart is also not something that we need to judge, but we can see this too as a condition. So that's that's the wisdom side of uh, of moha. So kalesas are everything, and we can just think of. Well, let's just name some that maybe you, you bumped into. So first, did anyone experience a moment of suffering today, to whatever degree? And just really, what really honest. Did anyone not experience any suffering today? I do want to know. Anyone managed to get out of the... And if you just uh, didn't want to raise your hand, you can tell me afterwards. Okay, so... I would love to talk to you. <laughs> I want to know what you're doing. So, okay. Suffering. So what, what was... What, tell me what you noticed about what was the cause of your suffering. In a word or, or two, maybe just popcorn and see if anything wants to come out. What did... What, why did you suffer? Disappointment. Disappointment? Grief. Grief. What's that? Grief. Grief. Expectations. 
expectations. Wild mind. Wild mind. Bugs. Bugs. What was it? Bugs. Bugs. Oh, they said birds. I was like, Bugs. Yes. Yes, so being wrapped up in the greed aversion versus just being interested. Yeah, great. Yeah, there's a lot to see. Wanting so all of the, everything that's in the Buddha basically said that the the vast array, in some ways, the creative, truly, I sometimes like to think of it as how creative we can be in the different ways that we find like how to suffer. There are so many ways we will torture ourselves. Like even we come here, we try to make all the conditions perfect and wonderful and you know, it's, there's, we're being cooked for and there's hopefully enough, like a bed is comfortable enough. And, but we don't find lots of ways. And we go to any place in the world, the perfect retreat center. You know, Joseph Goldstein, the uh, wonderful inside teacher, he, I was with him recently, and we have different personalities. His, he wants to get out of suffering immediately. I like to explore every single facet of it. I, I, for some reason, I just really need to understand thoroughly like the nature of everything that, that my heart goes through. But um, so he, was, he often shares a story of, because he doesn't like to suffer very much, earlier in his practice, he would try and create like the perfect meditation uh, seat, and for him it was like a bed, and he tried to create as many like soft, any place that like body would eventually feel a little hardness, he'd put more cushion there. So eventually he was on this like, giant floating thing trying to get perfectly like out of suffering, and it wouldn't, it didn't work. Sooner or later something would arise. Right? The inevitability of unsatisfactory experiences, it's going to come. But have you seen his meditation chair? Is it gorgeous? I'm just saying. You're not allowed to say. <laughs> he promised. He made you promise secrecy. Oh. Damn it. <laughs> we'll talk about why speech next. This is how it all starts. <laughs> Yeah, I just had a quote that pertains really well to this. So this is by Ian McCrory. It's called The Mood Appears When the Water is Still. It's a story. My hut is leaking, said the novice, and my stairs are rickety. Wonderful, replied the abbot. There's no need to thank me. But we get the same food every day and not enough of it. The generator is running in the meadow, and the early morning tractor outside is running. (laughs) Excellent, said the abbot. Again, there's no need to thank me. (laughs) They're doing the dishes in the kitchen. 
My hut is too close to the village, and I can hear their festivals. Perfect. No thanks necessary. But I keep telling you how terrible everything is, and you keep saying it is wonderful. And it is wonderful. The world just as it is, is all we need to achieve liberation. Misery is the compost for the flowering of Dhamma. Without imperfection, growth in the Dhamma would not be possible. In a perfect world, we can only attain complacency. In an imperfect world, we can attain enlightenment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.